Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. Alina, who do we have with us today? Today we have Joshua Proven, who is an author, historian and blogger. His most recent book, Wild East, the British and Japan, 1854 to uh, 1868. And he is also the founder of the blog and website, Histories, um, Adventures in Historyland, if I could get that correct. Welcome. Uh, thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. Um, this is great, Josh, because we had a brief chat about some of this with Leslie Downer weeks ago when she was talking about Japan, um, but didn't really get into the the deep sort of research side of things. So this is great. Um, so this is from when Japan opens up to the West until Tom Cruise arrives, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. In fact, I, I had to stop. Uh, I had to stop researching when he arrived because there was just so much more material and it wouldn't fit into the book brilliant and because no one really likes tom cruise anyway no no i like that film i did but he needs to grow old gracefully now and stop jumping up and down (laughs) on sofas Uh, i think a lot of i think a lot of people enjoy the uh his hairstyle more than the film do you think he has plugs i would not dare I would not dare comment on uh, whether he had whether he grew it himself or not. Yeah, this is true. This is. I just remember when he did Collateral and he had grey hair and he went, "Oh, I might keep my hair like this when it finally goes grey." And I was like, "Dude, you're like fifty. <laughs> Your hair's been grey for years. No one believes that." Anyway, we get or we get sued by Tom Cruise. So, Josh, can you yeah. give us an overview of Japan and uh, her political problems in 1854? Okay, I'll have a go. Um, so. Uh, basically, what you have is uh, it's it's sort of ruled by two people, although effectively only by one. Uh, I should say administration, and uh, that is the emperor in Kyoto and the shogun uh, at Edo. And the this is a this is a this is a confusing relationship that goes back to the 12th century and the Genpei War where the emperor is essentially, essentially becomes a hostage of the shogun. And the shogun is a, is a kind of a generalissimo, um, uh, a military uh, administrative post, which is meant to sort of, take, uh, sort of take care of things when things go wrong, uh, back then anyway. And yeah, they, they pretty much, there's a huge war and the shogun comes to pa- full power pretty much, uh, and they this this situation lasts for centuries. And by 1600, the shogun is um, a guy called Tokugawa Ieyasu, 
And his dynasty, uh, Tokugawa dynasty, then continues to run Japan as a shogun in the name of the emperor um, for 300 or just about under 300 years afterwards. And it, by the 19th century, uh, the capital is in Edo, and that's why it's called the Edo period. And uh, things, are, things are getting rocky uh, because um, by the 1840s, you have a kind of an intellectual revolution when the shogun who has, since, since 16, 1603, I think, shut the country down to foreign, to foreign uh, interference, trade, um, travel, um, and com gone into complete isolation, uh, uh, which I suppose we can all sympathize with. Uh, no, <laughs> but um, yeah, he, uh, the ban on, on, on publishing Western books is lifted in, in the 1840s. And suddenly you have all these scientific tracts coming in that is translated um, into Dutch. Because the Dutch are the only people, weirdly, who are allowed to stay in Japan on a little island off Nagasaki. And this causes a whole big intellectual debate across the, in the, the literate class, uh, the bushy class, as they were called, the warrior class, which we commonly called samurai. And um, they start writing books, the most, um, the most important of which is one called the Dainihonshi, which um, I believe translates to the great history of Japan or something like that. And it basically outright questions the right of the shogun to rule. And it becomes a manifesto for the new emerging party that says the emperor really should be running things now, not the shogun. And a huge political debate erupts uh, in wake of this um, about whether the country should open uh, what is what was called the uh, kaikoku stance or the sakaku, which is the closed stance. And they, they fact up. They split into groups and they argue endlessly about this. And then the Americans come. Commodore Perry comes. I think it's a year before the British, uh, 1853, uh, the uh, possibly, or 1854. I've, I've completely got, gone blank on that one. I think one of those two years, anyway. 1854, I think. 1854. But, um, yeah. What is the Japanese attitude towards foreigners at this time? The Japanese attitude towards foreigners is one of suspicion. Um, and one of cultural superiority, even though a lot of uh, the, what you might call the, what used to be called the Enlightenment Party, or the uh, pro-foreign party, as would later become called, did understand that foreigners had incredibly advanced technology that the Japanese just did not have. And some, some, some of the lords of Japan who are uh, called the daimyos, especially the ones in Satsuma domain, um, like uh, Shimatsu uh, Narakira, uh, traded illegally with um, foreigners in the Ryoku Islands and was a, uh, a great uh, sort of leader of uh, the Progressive Party um, and hungered for Western ideas. But generally, it was one of suspicion. And how, in return, how did Europe view the, uh, view the Japanese? Mm -hmm. Well, Europe saw Japan through the window of the Dutch island of Decima in the Bay of Nagasaki. Uh, and so they only really knew much. The most detailed stuff that anybody knew about um, Japan was um, 
through books written by Dutch ethnographers like Seibold and, and people like that. And uh, apart from that, just historical associations through famous shipwrecked sailors like um, uh, uh, Adams and uh, the later traders who tried to establish an East India Company uh, warehouse in Japan, which obviously went down the tubes when the, when the Edo period began. Uh, so it was really, they didn't have a huge fix on them. They figured that they were backwards and uh, one, one British diplomat going out there to begin with called them semi-civilized and mostly an image of regressive feudalism, I think. So the Americans arrive, obviously, before the British. And then the British arrive in 1854. Can you tell us how they were treated when they arrived to Japan? Uh, the British, uh, uh, yes, yes, I think so. Um, there's not a huge amount of detail on uh, interaction there. The Japanese handled it very strictly whenever foreigners arrived. They pretty much just tried to get them into a room in a palace somewhere and didn't allow them to see the rest of the country, uh, usually through Nagasaki. Um, Rear Admiral Sir James Sterling um, was the guy who, who came in 1854. Uh, he was just there pretty much to arrange safe havens and uh, identify some some ports where, to, where ships could could be allowed to land and get supplies um and they pretty much the japanese i think remained aloof mostly mostly and just to try their best to restrict the foreigners to nagasaki and hakodate which is in the north um and tried to just keep them out of the country as much as possible but without fighting them talk to us about china because i want to know was there any difference between the two nations in the way that the british were treated uh, right. Well, China and Japan did both employ the treaty port system where they tried to keep foreigners, European foreigners certainly, in, in specific areas where they could control what they did and watch them very closely. But if anything, the, um, the Chinese gave more, the Chinese, well, the Chinese failure the failure of the Qing dynasty to deal with the uh, Europeans allowed the Japanese to adopt um, a different course uh, because they saw what happened in the Opium War, uh, which was just, you know, British army and ships um, battering them, uh, the Qing Empire into dust sort of in a huge humiliating defeat. And most of the daimyos, no matter what side they were on in the debate, of what to do, all acknowledge that we can't fight the Europeans at this point. So they tried to treat them well. They tried to not confront them. They tried to work around them. And that was, I think, the lesson of China in Japan. Um, So the British have arrived. How did they see Edo, which is modern day Tokyo? And for those who don't know, it was untouched by foreign influence at that point, wasn't it? It was. Um, They were amazed by Edo. Uh, if you think about the fact that most people that ever came to Japan, they only saw Nagasaki, and there was a lot of um, cheap knockoff goods to be sold there, and it was um, fairly, you know, uh, infected, if you want to use a rather uh, blunt word, with with foreign goods and people. And the Dutch had a very strong presence there, but the it, they saw it was a they were very impressed by Edo. It's huge size. People said it was larger, estimated it was, must have been larger than New York, maybe London. 
in size, in like scale. Um, but they, they was a huge, um, huge mass of wood framed paper houses, um, with tiled roofs and things like that crammed into tight blocks. And it was just a sea of people. And they, uh, they loved trying to explore it as much as they could within the guidelines. So in 15, sorry, 15, my God, I was stuck in the 20th century. Um, <laughs> in 1858, I need to start reading dates correctly. Uh, the Japanese, the Anglo-Japanese Treaty of Amity and Commerce was signed. What was this treaty and why was it so important and what were the results of it? Okay. Um, well, pretty much everybody got one of these, all of the, what they called the treaty powers. So obviously the Americans got one first. Um, the British came pretty close second, the uh, Prussians and uh, all the other uh, guys who just, just said, hey, Japan's open, we've got to go. And um, Harris, US Consul Harris paved the way pretty much for this form treaty to be pretty much given to everybody because he said, um, he, he said that the, if he told the Shogun that if, if you don't give the British a treaty, they will just batter you until you give them one. Uh, and so it was the official naming of the treaty ports, which was to five were to be opened in about three years. Um, free travel for diplomats with authorization um, with, and uh, the allowance of traders to stay in said treaty ports and to stay within certain boundary lines. The concept of extraterritoriality, I think, is the word, um, which means that no European citizen can basically break a law in Japan and be tried by a Japanese court. They have to be tried by, say, if a British person did something wrong, they would have to be tried by British consular court. And an equality of treatment politically amongst the treaty powers, so Japan couldn't give something to one and not give it to the others. Um, and there would be a revision of terms in 1872. How did the British manage to function in such a different society? So they've rocked up and waded in, but there's different traditions and laws and no knowledge of the language. Um, it's not like they can phonetically read it out either. <laughs> yeah, that was a big problem, actually. The, the early early diplomats and translators who had the, the, the plum job of being told, you're going to learn Japanese now. Um, pretty much uh, just were a bit uh, at a loss to begin with because obviously they were taken from the Chinese diplomatic service and they, um, they quickly found out that the, the languages were different and that the, 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 the alphabets were roughly the same but they sounded different and uh, as it was an alien environment for a lot, environment, sorry, for a lot of people um, many fresh from Shanghai, however, uh, thought that it was a fairy tale land uh, because most British people coming into Japan usually came in through China and nobody apparently liked China very much, or at least the Shanghai and things like that. And they used to come into Japan and see its big mountains and its uh, architecture and its uh, big wide roads like the Tokaido and the Nagasendo. And no, it's it's weird. They they all talk about it as if it's like something out of a J.M. Barry book. Um, and few of them have anything bad particularly to say about it. They do try. They do criticize the people quite a lot in the government. But as for the place itself, they 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 fall in love. A lot of them fall in love with it. 
language-wise, these interpreters had to depend a lot on Dutch translators, like the Seibolds, uh, until they could train their own. Uh, most famously, Ernest Satow, who uh, is, becomes a great Japanese linguist and scholar, writes books and, and histories of Japan in English uh, and Japanese. Um, and uh, they navigated their way around pretty much because the, the port, treaty port system worked very well in containing, it certainly in Japan, it worked very well in containing the foreigners and controlling their habits because you couldn't go a certain length outside of the city limits where you were. And also everybody was very aware that, um, well, every, every samurai was armed and had the legal ability to kill you if you did something wrong. So that tended to keep people semi-well behaved. When did the attitude towards the British change in Japan? Well, in, it, because of the internal confusion in Japan, things changed slowly. And specifically with the British, um, it changes when you get a new governor, you get a new uh, consul general. Uh, sorry, but there's a dog just came in there. <laughs> uh, it, it changes when the new consul general arrives, really, um, because uh, after after the first two, you get uh, Sir Harry Parks, and Harry Parks is a new broom, and he comes in uh, around 1865, 1866, and he immediately is uh, sort of uh, lobbied by merchants and diplomats and Japanese uh, merchants and diplomats themselves. Because by this point, affairs between the shogun and the emperor or their factions have gotten to such a terrible state that um, they're pretty much uh, just building up to fight each other. And it's, everybody's wondering what the Europeans are going to do, and the Americans, although they're fighting the civil war at the time, so it's not so much their game. And uh, the, Harry Parks at first thinks he's going to follow the, the main line with that had been followed by people like... Um, Sir Rutherford Alcock, uh, which is basically to support the Shogun, um, because until that point, everybody thought that the Shogun was on their side. And it wasn't that he wasn't on their side. It's much more confused than that. But um, the local lords who supported the, um, the, the emperor, uh, especially the southern daimyo, like Satsuma and Chosu, um, they basically became the new the new allies of Britain through Harry Parks and merchants like um, uh, Thomas Glover. Uh, Thomas Glover had great mercantile interest in um, uh, uh, cultivating these, these, uh, these great lords. And he basically went to Harry Parks and said, Japan's future is with the Southern Daimyos, who are the men who are going to basically support the emperor. And, that's when attitudes begin to change because the daimyos were the enemy and then they became their best friends with the British. And uh, it was very important that the British choose the sides in the upcoming war carefully because they wanted to be on the winning side, basically. You've already mentioned a military garrison in Yokohama. How did they manage that? Didn't the Japanese like, oppose that idea? Well, yeah, yeah. It, 
I mean, generally speaking, the Japanese were not keen on European powers landing troops in their country. That was the whole uh, <laughs> the whole deal about the treaty port system and and things like that. Um, but uh, it was an exceptional kind of. It was an exceptional issue, an exceptional event, because, uh, as I said the, before, um, with Japan dividing, essentially, and instability, instability rising, and the factions on either side being essentially unable to control the daimyos and the, the ronin faction, um, uh, who were just going, the, the latter of which were just roaming the countryside trying to kill people, especially Europeans, was a, a big fad amongst these wayward swordsmen to kill a European if they could. Um, that uh, a large military presence be put in Japan, because also the, the confusion of uh, who is in charge and who is behind all of these outrages, uh, which I, I think we'll get to later, um, caused the British to um, be on the brink of war at least once and possibly twice with the Shogun. And that obviously meant um, the, the deployment of troops and the consul, acting consul generally, uh, Axel, acting consul general, lost my ability to speak, sorry. <laughs> uh, acting consul general there, um, uh, who was uh, at the time just before the main amount of troops arrived? I think it was uh, uh, Sinjin Neal, Colonel Sinjin Neal. Um, uh, he he was constantly badgering uh, General Brown in China to give him to give him troops to defend Yokohama because he was uh, absolutely certain that they would be wiped out eventually um, if he didn't get some sort of force in there. And so, and they also, uh, and obviously. It, that was a bit. He was a bit on edge there because he did have the navy, so he was probably going to be all right. But he absolutely felt that troops were needed, and the Japanese dealt with it pretty much in the way that they did at this time, which was to be completely confused about what to do about it, argue about it, then essentially do nothing. Um, the shogun, who was the guy who had, would have had the most problem with it, allowed it to happen or at least never objected particularly to it, uh, because he couldn't stop it happening, realistically. And um, he couldn't stop anything happening, and that was his problem. He couldn't control his own lords, um, who were ostensibly his own lords. He couldn't control the emperor anymore, and he certainly couldn't control the British. And so he just pretty much let them do what they wanted so long as they... They behave. They they promise not to be t basically attack him. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So let's talk about Charles, Charles Richardson. Let's first of all, tell us who he was, what happened to him, and what were the consequences of actually what does happen to him. Hmm. Well, it's interesting. It's a really interesting uh, part of of my book and of the story in itself. It's one of the pivotal moments. It's this guy, uh, uh, Charles uh, Charles Lennox Richardson, and um, it's obviously the central uh, driving part of uh, James Cavell's book, Guy Jin. Um, Charles Lennox Richardson was a sort of a a businessman, a trader, uh, who had made a fortune in China. He was quite well known amongst the British in Japan. Uh, quite a few people had actually met him in China, although specifics of his life there are not very well known. But what's certain is that he'd made his, made his fortune and he was actually coming back, uh, to going to go home to Britain uh, now that he was rich. And he was stopping off in Japan basically to to have a sort of a holiday, I guess, a, a layover while he waited for a ship. And while he, um, while he waited for a ship to take him off back to, uh, well, the long, long route, <laughs> uh, voyage back to Britain, he went on an outing one day uh, outside of Yokohama with um, some mutual friends, uh, a Mrs. Borodale, uh, Mr. Clark and Mr. March- Marshall, and they were basically going to have a day day out uh, looking at the sites. And they ended up going down the Tokaido, which is the main road, main road, uh, famous main road, called, which is the Great Eastern uh, Sea Road, uh, moving up towards a small, insignificant post town, I think, called uh, Namamugi. And this was the 14th of September, 1862. Tragedy ensues because... Uh, Charles Richardson had never been to Japan before. He didn't know how to act uh, uh, amongst the Japanese. As I was saying earlier, a lot of people were very well behaved because they were afraid of the samurai and afraid of basically being locked up and considered a prison if they misbehaved. He wasn't like that. He, apparently he was, he was a, a, a kind of a, just the worst kind of, of British uh, moneymaker in the East um, the kind who thought he was absolutely superior um, and wanted to show it. And so he, he, events transpired that they happened to collide with a, uh, a, a procession carrying a daimyo back home from a trip to Edo. Uh, Edo, sorry. Um, and, well, well, the escort kill him is the short of it, long and short of it. They kill him, they attack the others, they badly wound, um, I think, mo- both of the men. And this sends Yokohama uh, into an uproar. And a posse has got together to go out to either rescue him or bring his body back. The merchants are up in arms. They want to absolutely go um, and lynch this, this daimyo. Um, and go and find him and basically hang him uh, for for ki- for killing uh, Richardson. And the guy in, uh, at the second, there's an acting consul general in 
uh, Yokohama, and that is the chap I mentioned before, the the <clears throat> the, the opera singing martinet, Colonel Colonel Sinjin Neal, and he um, he is very level-headed about it. He knows he he doesn't want to get into another opium war. He knows that anybody who does that is going to pretty much be hauled up before Parliament and probably disgraced. There's no, there's no, it, there's no enthusiasm for a war with Japan and Britain. Um, and he calms everything down, and he resorts to diplomacy to solve the issue, which is nevertheless very, um, uh, I don't know what the word is. It's very tough on the Japanese. A huge indemnity is is demanded from the from the uh from the japanese government uh and uh satsuma uh the daimyo satsuma the daimyo and an apology of course from satsuma himself and the daimyo of satsuma refuses to even talk about it with the british and the but the the shogun has to pay in the end and because although the because although the shogun pays and the daimyo of Satsuma, but the daimyo, uh, daimyo of Satsuma doesn't. A punitive expedition is sent out against Satsuma, and this results in what's known as the Anglo-Satsuma War. It should be, yeah, it's really confusing because nobody ever goes to war actually with Japan. The shogun's actually quite happy for the Europeans to batter Satsuma into submission, although he would prefer to do it himself. Um, uh, and this results in the bombardment of Kagoshima, uh, which in turn results in um, a great loss of property for the people of that city because during the fight where the Admiral Cooper of the Royal Navy leads a very heavily armed squadron into Kinko, sorry, into the bay, um, uh, and pretty much um, burns most of the town down. But that's where it ends basically um, that's the that's the legacy of the death of uh, richardson at namamugi is this uh, conflagration at kagoshima doesn't there end up being open conflict in 1864 what happens yeah there is there is open conflict in 1864 but it's much the same in character as what happened in uh 63 against satsuma because, um, again, it's not against the Japanese state. Nobody goes to war with the emperor or the shogun, which would have meant actually going to war with Japan. They go to war with another daimyo, uh, which is daimyo Chosu, who is a little further north uh, in Japan and is, uh, ha has, due to yet more internal politics in uh, Japan itself, uh, tried to, first of all, they tried to take control of the emperor in Kyoto and failed. And then they, uh, they pretty, they, they followed a directive that was issued from the court, um, to revere the emperor and expel barbarians, uh, which, uh, is famously called, uh, Sono Joy. And this, and, and this, basically the, the daimyo of Chosu jumps the gun and uh, careers off on his own, locks down the Straits of Shimonoseki, which is 
one of the fastest routes for merchant vessels to get into the uh, uh, inland sea of Japan and out to the east to Edo. Um, uh, his shore batteries, uh, which are very, um, uh, very uh, strong, fire on quite a few European ships and the Europeans respond um, What's the, first of all, they just, first of all, the French and the Americans respond because their ships are fired on. And then um, basically they can't persuade the daimyo of Chosu to back down. And so a huge international flotilla is arranged and they go to Shimonoseki in 1864 and they bombard Shimonoseki. And it is a, a very... It's a two-day fight. First of all, they silence the batteries and then they land troops. And, the, and it's very strange in a way because the British don't actually have a reason to be there except that they want to be in charge of their operation. Um, so Rutherford Alcock is Consul General now and he, I think, feels that he has missed out on the action uh, because of uh, the bombardment of Kagoshima, which actually is a political nightmare for... Uh, the instigators of it, but despite being told by the government in a communique, which he um, <laughs> faithfully won't get until all of this is done, uh, telling him that you must not go around bombarding people's cities, he does order this to happen, to happen. and after they silence the shore batteries, Admiral Cooper is in command again, they, um, they land troops and there's, there's, uh, they burn the, the batteries and they destroy the guns, capture guns. There's a lot of, there's a lot of Shimonoseki guns uh, lying around various places in Europe, actually, if you know where to look for them. And uh, actually, three Victoria Crosses are awarded to British troops at Shimonoseki for, um, the, for the, for, uh, in, the, in the Naval Brigade of HMS Urialis. Um, for their for their uh, bravery in this action. So we're now slowly getting to the end of the Meiji Restoration. What is the political mm -hmm. situation like in Japan by 1866, and what role do the British play? The situation in 1866 is 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 calming down certainly for the British. They know a lot more of what they're doing now. They've learned a great deal about who is actually in charge in Japan, um, and the political and historical debate that swirls around it, that drives it. And for the British in 1866, certainly their goal is just to continue supporting the right faction. For the Japanese, the political situation is, is also simplifying, but it's still rather confused because nobody's, you can't absolutely be sure at this point that there will be a civil war, although a lot of people are clamoring for it. But the, the, the shogun tries to bring Chosu, uh, Cho, the daimyo of Chosu, who obviously has just been bombarded by the, by the allies in Shimonoseki, into line. And a massive army is put together to invade Chosu. Uh, and embarrassingly and unbelievably, Chosu Han, on its own, and uh, I just want to say Han there is just the Japanese word for de sort of um, to city domain kind of thing. Chosu Han, who has actually very well, uh, a very well appointed, drilled and equipped army, 
defeats all of the invasions. And this is a huge setback for the Shogun politically and in terms of uh, his reputation. And it becomes incredibly, increasingly clear as rebellions flare up uh, across Japan, isolated rebellions, and how slowly the Shogun is able to suppress them, that he no longer is able really to, um, to, to say he rules Japan, really, because he cannot control it. It's becoming obvious that this is the case. And every, a lot more people are starting to see the emperor as the natural way to go. I also want to point out here that although I'm using the word shogun as if it's one person, it has actually changed. It does. They're, they're, they're different, different guys um, mm. since the beginning of the story. Um, the the murder of British sailors and soldiers is not a new thing. But what happens in 1867 that causes tensions between the British and the shogunate? In 1867, what has happened is that. Well, basically, Sir Harry Parks just absolutely turns away from the Shogun as the legitimate ruler of Japan. He doesn't out and out call him a usurper, but he does um, open negotiations with the daimyo of Satsuma and the, also the daimyo of Chosu. And there's actually a huge arms trade going on. Uh, with uh, some rather dodgy merchants, uh, <laughs> like uh, Thomas Thomas Glover, uh, who is not only selling muskets and c- cannons to these these uh, domains, but um, but holds warships as well, and uh, transport ships and things like that, basically creating a, a navy for them, and. Uh, Ernest Satow, who is now, uh, I think, first secretary of the the British legation, um, is is behind a lot of uh, is a good example of how things change between the Shogun and the British. Because he, first of all, he he writes an editorial for um, a newspaper that is being published in the Treaty Ports, where he where he accidentally. Um, becomes famous as an anti-shogun um, player because he says he, he writes this for the consumption of the Europeans, but uh, but says just agrees pretty much that the shogun has no right actually if you look at it to to run the country. Although it's a much bigger debate, and you know you can argue about that actually in terms of Japanese history. But he said he made that argument, and he became very favorable amongst the, the imperial faction. And obviously, uh, Sir Harry Parks, um, he he basically throws himself behind the the southern uh, southern daimyos, uh, who essentially make him more or less a, a allied or aligned politically aligned at least with the, the imperial faction, and that. Uh, and and the shogun, as a result, turns much more to the French for European support because he's now thinking, maybe I can get a European ally if I have to fight the emperor. So uh, that's how that's how things changed in eighteen sixty seven. Um, and then British um, things change again for them and for Japan as well because there's a civil war, isn't there? Yes, there is the the Boshin War. Um, as, as it's called. Um, and 
the British again play an indirect uh, role in this, although Sir Harry Parks has done his level best to ensure that um, essentially that the Shogun is overthrown and he does support as much as he possibly can. Some, some of it was just simply by turning a blind eye to the massive amounts of weaponry that was being shipped into the, uh, the Imperial uh, factions, uh, uh, depots and um, munitions factories and things like that by, by independent merchants. But uh, more or less, the British and all the Europeans, except the French, I think, stand back from the Boshin War. Um, and see what happens. They hold their breath a little. Simply speaking, as I said before, the Shogun has not been one man through this entire time. There's been about three Shoguns since the, uh, since the, since the British arrive, since the Americans arrive, I should say. And now it's in the hands of a guy who used to be called uh, Hitotsubashi Kaiki uh, and is now called... Um, Tokugawa Yoshinobu and he is a reluctant uh, shogun he would prefer to reform the shogun's government which is uh, commonly called the Bakufu uh, but being is that he can't do that in the current political situation he just decides he, would, he will give it up and he resigns his position, essentially handing over power to the emperor. And he's going to stay roughly in power until he can hand this over. But events transpire to get out of his control. And he has to flee, uh, he has to flee Kyoto, or at least get out of it, because that is now firmly in the hands of the Imperial Party, and he, and and war breaks out very soon afterwards, where he tries to take Kyoto and to kind of get control of the emperor, um, uh, and his his army is defeated at the Battle of uh, Toba Fushimi, um, in I believe it's January of eighteen sixty eight. Uh, this is the major battle of the Boshin War. Um, where a huge, huge pro-shogun army is defeated by a much better armed and disciplined uh, uh, pro-imperial army and led by um, some very famous uh, figures in uh, Japanese, in subsequent Japanese uh, Meiji era history. The the shogun's uh, military fortunes never recover. Edo falls in the spring of 1868, and <clears throat> the British are very quick to basically throw themselves towards the emperor and congratulate him on his on his new uh, found power. This emperor's name is Mutsuhito, and he is known commonly as the Meiji Emperor. Thank you so much for coming on to talk to us a bit more about the period that's covered in your book. Just for people that do want to um, get hold of it, just tell them where they can and what it's called. The, the book is Wild East, British and Japan, 1854 to 1868. Um, 
it came out at an awful point in modern history. Uh, uh, and um, so I have no idea if it's in any bookshops. And I don't even know if there are any bookshops open that you could go and order it from anyway. But I know that it is online at the publishers, uh, which is uh, www.fonthillmedia.com and also on Amazon. I believe it is available in America and the you and your uh, and I hope that people will buy it and I hope they like it. Well, congratulations! Um, it's great and it certainly has opened my eyes to a point in history that I knew absolutely nothing about, barring Tom Cruise and his floppy hair. <laughs> so thanks very coming. Thanks very much for coming on to talk to us about it. Well, it was my pleasure, and uh, I want to congrat- congratulate you on the great, uh, ch- the great thing you, the podcast that you've put together. Because I'm kind of in awe at, at what, what you're managing to put out, uh, <laughs> and how you're <laughs> yeah. managing to do, how, how you're managing to do this. <laughs> uh, we are slightly going crazy, is the answer. <laughs> Alina is mistaking lumps of rock for cheesecake on Twitter. <laughs> uh, but thank you very much. That's very sweet of you. Uh, my, it was uh, just, just keep up the good work. And tell everyone about Historyland while you're here. Oh, right. Yeah, Historyland. Yeah, that's what I've been doing for a longer time than the book. Yeah, uh, my, my blog is adventuresinhistoryland.com. And it's where you'll find uh, me uh, rambling about books I've read and history when I get the time to write blog posts and things like that. It's a place that... Um, I use just to indulge my my interests uh, and uh, to 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 share my interests with with the world, as if you can sort of put it in those terms. Uh, well, thousands of people enjoy it, um, so do go and have a look because it's got a huge following. Thanks very much. Join us tomorrow when Bob Nicholson will be with us to talk all about the Victorian sense of humour. If you think they're not amused, you'd be wrong, because it turns out that all that British smuttiness, carry-on type stuff is basically a continuation from the Victorians. Alina had an absolute meltdown laughing at rude, smutty, um, like basically nursery rhymes that he had. Uh, And this is great fun. Really good, relaxing podcast. And then on Sunday, Sergei Palukin will be with us to talk all about Russians on the Western Front in World War I. He's a great mate of mine. I love him. He's brilliant. And he tells an absolutely great story. So you can find out the lesser known story of all these poor Russians that ended up in France during World War I instead of fighting on their own front and what happened when the revolution came about and the problems of what to do with them. Really interesting stuff. And he gives you some great tips on where to go on the battlefields to look into this some more for yourselves. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.